Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Matt Perry. It's March 16th, 2023. Uh, we're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, the first question, get things started. Why wine? Why wine? Um, I guess that kind of boils down to, you know, when I was still in college, um, pursuing, you know, kind of fermentation stuff. I was brewing beer at home, uh, and I realized that Brewing beer is a lot of the same over and over, a lot of cleaning, even more cleaning than winemaking somehow. Uh, and I also found out that the brewery industry is really competitive. Um, you know, I was looking for brewery jobs back in Minnesota to try and get my fo- foot in the door to do anything. And it was basically like, you can come here and volunteer. And um, so the idea of getting paid as a poor college student was really motivating me uh, to do a harvest in the wine industry. Um, and I've always, you know, liked, um, I've always been more of like a scientific kind of, I don't know if that's right brain or left brain, but the sciencey one, um, been more that kind of a person. So uh, I think wine is really interesting because it's kind of rooted in all of those, um, you know, scientific backgrounds. And I was fortunate to have a lot of chemistry and um, microbiology, stuff like that. Um, but I think there's, you know, that constant unknown of things that just can't be explained by numbers or analysis or anything like that. Um, and I think to me, that's really the most kind of inspiring thing about being a winemaker is that, you know, you're always on this chase for this almost unobtainable goal. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of just endlessly fascinating and, and thought-provoking. So let's talk about life before wine a little bit. Tell us about where you're born and raised, where you grew up, and uh, life before wine. Yeah, so I grew up in Minnesota, um, up in the North Burbs. Uh, have, you know, two, two parents and one little brother, and pretty normal childhood, I think. You know, lots of riding bikes around, playing home run derby in the, in the street. Um, and kind of always was interested in the outdoors. Um, you know, had a big kind of growing up through like Boy Scouts and did a lot of camping and backpacking. Um, and that is, you know, being out in the vineyard is, is always something that I've really liked about my job. You know, I don't like having a nine to five office job. Um, so growing up there, um, you know, really kind of my parents weren't into wine. They were, they're into food, um, I guess, in the same way that most 90s people are. I guess, you know, watching Emerald, uh, you know, was a big culinary highlight of my childhood. Uh, but, you know, they, they did a lot, taking us to, to you know, nice restaurants. And um, it was always, my grandmas were also, you know, both really good cooks. So it was, it was always a highlight when grandma came to stay while my parents were on vacation because we'd eat really good food. Um, and from there, I think, you know, the wine thing didn't really start until kind of later in college. Um, 
I had graduated high school, gone up to Vancouver, BC to do um, school up there. Um, my dad was a pharmacist and I had been working in pharmacies, so I was kind of on the pre-med pharmacy track. Um, and UBC wouldn't let me into pharmacy school unless I you know, applied for a green card and, and moved to Canada, which I didn't really want to do at the time. I mean, you know, it wouldn't have been bad, but it wasn't uh, my end-all be-all. Uh, so after a couple of years, I transferred back to the University of Minnesota um, and, you know, continued working in pharmacies and um, going through, you know, anatomy class and uh, some, some real dull stuff. And <laughs> I kind of realized that I didn't, really want to follow that path anymore. Um, and kind of as I alluded to earlier, I'd, you know, somehow, I don't know if it's because I was 20 and, you know, couldn't buy beer, but I was brewing my own beer. Um, really interested in that kind of fermentation science. Uh, I was really fortunate that the University of Minnesota has a good program. Um, they've developed a lot of apples and grapes and blueberries and um, kind of had a, have a niche in the cold, hardy viticulture sphere. So there was a research laboratory there, research vineyard. Um, so I kind of decided that I was going to add another year, pursue the wine thing, um, and so did like a minor in horticulture, and then kind of steered my chemistry degree more towards analytical chemistry than like medical studies. So. I got really lucky that most everything I was doing was pretty applicable. You know, I wasn't a philosophy major that decided last minute I wanted to make wine. Um, and, you know, got really lucky with the team at the Horticultural Research Center there. Um, John and Jenny, hello, thank you. Uh, Nick Smith, hello, thank you. Um, but, uh, but, you know, basically got plopped in and um, really got my feet wet in you know, probably up to the shins, really. Um, and that was, you know, the only way that I could really make it work in Napa. If I wouldn't have had that kind of lab, strong lab background, um, I don't know if I would have ever gotten a job <laughs> in Napa. Um, so yeah, did, did that and um, graduated in July. I was a summer grad of, uh, of university, which is, you know, a little melancholy. Uh, don't get to walk with everyone else, but, uh, you know, most of the classes, classes that I needed to finish up had little to nothing to do with winemaking. So in a way, I was kind of ready to just take my finals. And the week after I was done with school, I moved out to Napa for my first harvest out there. Um, and that was, you know, almost night and day going from a tiny little research winery uh, where we're making, you know, a gallon, maybe five gallons at the most of wine, um, out to Napa where we're making hundreds and you know thousands of tons of grapes. Um, it was it was really really kind of special the first harvest. I think I was at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, which you know won the whole Judgment of Paris, and um, it was a really cool place to to start making wine and to, you know, experience all those things for the first time. Um, you know, a lot of the interns that I worked with, I'm still really good friends with. Uh, the winemakers there um, still keep in touch with somewhat. Um, but it was just really cool to go from, you know, almost nothing to one of the most historic wineries uh, in the Napa Valley.
So before we get <clears throat> before we get to Napa, I'm curious about your first experiences in that kind of research. Obviously, uh, Minnesota not really a, a, a big wine region or known for being a wine region. Tell me what the research vineyard viticulture work was like, and what uh, appealed to you enough to want to go on and take the next step. Yeah, so I I actually worked at two different wineries in Minnesota. Uh, I did, you know, even though I got into winemaking because of money. My first job in a commercial winery was definitely an unpaid uh, position. So it was actually uh, in this guy's garage. He had split the garage in two, and so half he ran his at-home accounting business out of, and then the other half he ran a small commercial winery out of, and we made grape wine, we made raspberry wine, we made blueberry wine. Um, and the weirdest thing about this wine, I'll never forget, it didn't have any running water in it. So if I had to clean anything, I had to take whatever I needed to clean out behind the garage and spray it out with the garden hose. Um, so I learned how important sanitation was uh, at that job. And you know, the HRC was really interesting. I hopped on, I didn't do harvest at the HRC, so um, when I got there, everything was pretty much all wine or, you know, nearly wine, um, still fermenting. Um, and, you know, all of that kind of lab work is used for research papers. So, you know, everything was done in triplicate, um, you know, <laughs> really good. Compared to, you know, most winery labs, uh, you know, extremely high level of standardization and control and, um, you know, external cross-checks with other labs. Um, but a lot of that was just kind of, um, you know, analysis for the next wave of grape varietals that they were about to release. So um, I got to work on the Marquette grape, which um, was exciting. The, there's kind of a first generation of grapes, and the red one called Frontenac is so obscenely dark that it will actually stain stainless steel. Um, so they were kind of looking for something that, you know, <laughs> was a little more uh, more commercially viable, um, which is, you know, at that point, it's kind of weird tasting wine that no one else has tasted. You know, you can count the number of people on one hand that have, you know, put those grapes or that wine in their mouth. Um, and the same thing with, you know, the apple breeding. That was one of my favorite parts of working there was, Pretty much every week, you know, they'd come in with a new bushel of, of some apples that they had bred, and you know, they asked us to rate how good it was, how the texture was, how sweet it was. So it was awesome, you know, just free apples of uh, all week long. Um, and so the HRC, you know, it was just a lot of, you know, routine analysis as far as you know, keeping the wines in check. Um, but then a lot of it was also just kind of seeing what really conformed to standard kind of winemaking analysis. Um, obviously, when you're breeding, breeding grapes for cold hardiness, you know, they use a lot of riparian background. Um, so things that, you know, are either way too acidic or, you know, don't ripen properly. Um, so, I mean, there is some wines, I feel like some wines, you know, had a pH of, 2.6 and you know 20 grams per liter of acid and just shocking numbers. Um, 
So we didn't, you know, didn't taste all of them. I think that would probably strip some enamel off your teeth pretty quick. Um, but no, it was a good team and, um, you know, really thankful to, to learn a lot of, you know, just basic lab winery skills. Um, you know, running specs, running titrators, running pH meters. And um, I think the other thing that I was really happy about was that, you know, it was done at such a high level it explained to me at such a high level, at least you know the lab work was that it kind of really reinforced that throughout my career. That you know, if if you're doing lab work, it's not just you know, you're not just trying to get a number; you're trying to get the right number or as close to the right number as you can. So I think it was a really good good foundation for me to build on. And what year did you graduate from college? Oh, good question. 2010. Why Napa? Napa had the most jobs available. Uh, and you know, 2010 was a hard time to get into the wine industry. Uh, I didn't really know this as a 23-year-old, but uh, the global financial crisis really did a number on the wine world. Uh, and I mean, that first year, I probably applied for 150, 200 jobs in Napa. I think I had four interviews, five interviews. Um, so I, you know, I, I took the job that was given to me. And it was funny, um, you know, I moved up here later, but kind of after I had settled up here, there's a couple people, you know, I did apply for some jobs in Oregon. I wasn't very picky about, you know, where I wanted to work. I just wanted to work somewhere. Um, but, you know, did connect with some people up here in Oregon and said, oh yeah, I, I interviewed for a job with you back in 2010. Um, and you know, Napa, I think at that time, just, you know, it was the place to make wine in America, I think, if you're going to start out. Um, and certainly, you know, 2010, Oregon was still, you know, somewhat unknown. Uh, I have a good friend that um, we took a road trip up here after harvest was done in 2010 and came to McMinnville, stayed at McMinniman's. Uh, and after coming from Napa, I was just kind of like, oh, is this, is this it? Is this all of wine country in Oregon? Um, and it was, it was. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was a good place to start. And I think Napa's also nice because, you know, the harvest is longer, the wineries are bigger. I think you just get a lot more repetitions doing things and a lot more practice, a lot more time to learn. Um, I don't think the winemaking community is quite as giving uh, down in Napa than it is up here, but you know, certainly making a couple thousand tons of grapes versus a couple hundred, you know, you get a lot more practice in, um, and just kind of the complexity of cellar work down there is, um, I think, it's a good foundation to build on. Um, you know, learning how to multitask and and you know, run multiple pumps at the same time, and um, I think it's it's a it's a nice place to learn. But you know, I'm glad I ended up up here. So, so you had mentioned your you mentioned obviously that that big leap into the the first harvest, the first first harvest there. Yes, the stag's leap. Stag's leap. It's a big leap in the stag. <laughs> it's a big thing. Exactly. Uh, so tell me about that experience for you. What uh, what did you enjoy about it? What what did you what was surprising to you, and what kind of helped you determine that was the right path for you? Yeah, um, so you know, the first harvest in um, Estegslip, I was in the lab and 
couldn't get out of the lab fast enough. Um, <laughs> I was a little fortunate that it was you know, not a great harvest, so a lot of sorting necessary, um, a, lot of, a lot of labor necessary. So I kind of weaseled my way out of the lab maybe once or twice a week to go work in the cellar. Um, and you know, I think at that time, what was really kind of not lost on me, but was more surprising was that you know you're working in a lab not retroactively um, looking at things during harvest, but like you're kind of the the pinch point, and so you know you're running on anal running analysis, and the winemaker is waiting for you to to make a decision about pressing or about some addition that they need to make. So. I think that was that was the biggest shock. I was used to kind of lab work at a okay, well, you know, set this up and then go have a break and then you know do some analysis and then you know lunch and uh, it was a much different pace. Um, and you know, fortunately, that first first harvest in Napa, I think it was pretty reasonable the hours, um, but it was such a long harvest. You know, we were I think we started in. August, you know, training and sampling, and you know, we didn't finish until practically Christmas. So um, it went by very fast. Uh, but you know, the the first harvest, I think, is you kind of are going through it, and you're like, well, I'm not, you know, don't think you're learning as much on a day to day basis. And then, you know, at the end of it, all of a sudden, you just realize that. You just have soaked up so much knowledge, just you know, on a every day, learning something new, seeing something new. Um, and yeah, it was a it's a really interesting winery to work at. Um, so after that harvest, then um, what were you kind of what were you what were you sort of hoping your career would be, and what was your and what was your next step? I definitely wanted to learn how to make wine in the cellar. <laughs> that was, um, you know, my primary goal at that point. Um, I still, you know, I came back to Minnesota or went back to Minnesota and uh, worked in wine shops. And I was uh, ski, a downhill ski racing coach. So my little brother was uh, on the ski team, so I had to go back and coach him and. Uh, so I did that, you know, through the spring, summer, um, winter, spring, summer, I guess, and then went back to Napa for 2011 and 2012 harvest. And from there, you know, I really kind of wanted to branch out and work at different kinds of wineries. Um, so the winery I worked at in 2011 was called Robert Sinsky Vineyards, and they, you know, did a lot more organic, biodynamic winemaking. Um, and couldn't have been a starker, you know, difference than working at Stag's Leap. Uh, it was really kind of enlightening, you know, how little they did to the wine. Um, you know, I just remember at Stag's Leap every day of white pressing, you know, at the end of the day, I'd weigh out chemicals to, you know, add to tanks and just that was kind of just the normal winemaking procedure and, you know, I didn't realized until I got to Robert Sinsky that we haven't added anything to these grapes. You know, we just moved the grapes from there to there and moved the juice from there to there. And um, so that was really kind of enlightening to me. And I'm glad it was, you know, my second harvest because I think if you were to just show up, it's your first harvest, you, 
you would almost take for granted, you know, how how limited the the winemaking kind of um, technique is. Not technique, but um, manipulation, chemical manipulation, whatever you care to call it. Um, and you know, Robert Sinski was great. It was a lot of fun. It was the first time I had made Pinot. Um, really enjoyed that. And got to make a lot of Alsatian white wines, um, blends and single varietal stuff. Pinot's where I fell in love with Cab Franc. Um, still have some bottles from, uh, from that winery, from that vintage, and obviously, you know, Cabernet Merlot. Um, but it was, it was good. It was a small team, much different. You know, there was t two interns, a cellar master, and, and you know, two winemakers, and for, I don't know, 600 tons. So, um, but it was a great kind of team building, bonding. You know, Stegs Leap was a very corporate winery. You know, everyone clocks in, clocks out, goes home, and um, that's where I kind of had the first real camaraderie of, of harvest and, um, you know, eating lunch together and having beers after work. Um, you know, certainly where I learned a lot of seller skills. Um, you know, there's really two and a half of us, you know, in the cellar. So it's a lot of barrels to fill for, for two people and um, really just great wine, great kind of ethos for winemaking. Um, we learned a lot. What did you like most about the work? That's a good question. Um, I like the people I worked with a lot, you know. Um, Zach and Armando, the two, two kind of guys I worked most with, were very friendly and also, you know, very giving in their knowledge. Um, and also, you know, supporting me in a way, I guess. I think, you know, obviously when you're doing something for the first time, you're going to make some mistakes. Uh, and I think I, I took my mistakes hard and they made sure to, to let me know that uh, it was okay and that I would screw up less in the future. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the people there were great. Um, the wine was great. I met my now wife, uh, wife there. We'd both worked there. She worked in the tasting room, and I worked in the in the cellar. So it always kind of be a special special winery for us. What about the next year? The next year, I went to Saint Supery Vineyard. So, you know, the thought being that. I worked at a small place, um, you know, organic, biodynamic, learned that side. And so I kind of wanted to work at a bigger winery, but also liked the kind of family-owned aspect. Um, and honestly, you know, I was also looking for some kind of full-time job. So I figure if I show up to a big winery, I might get lucky and they might, you know, need someone after harvest. Um, but St. Subaru, I mean, I it was one of the most technical wineries I've worked at. Um, you know, the winemaker, Michael, uh, is Australian, and he was just on it. Um, you know, you have hundreds and hundreds of tanks, and you, nothing went past the guy. Um, and that was, you know, 2,000 tons of Sauve Blanc, uh, probably another, I don't know, they did some custom crushed Pinot, did a lot of, Cabernet Bordeaux stuff, um, but you know that was 
a lot of repetition. That was really great. And you know, we would have bump overs would be usually two people in the big cellar. So you'd have one person on top, one person on the bottom, and you'd be pumping over probably five or six tanks at a time. Using walkie-talkies is the most fun I've had in winemaking in a long time. Um, and just really, you know, executing at a high, high level. Um, and I think, you know, that, that vintage, I just really, really learned how to hustle, I think, is, you know, the, really the, the one thing I took away from that. And I think also, you know, when you're working in a big winery, I think you have to be a little thought, more thoughtful about the way you work and, you know, pay more attention to how you set things up. And I think, I think it gives a good mindset when you're having to be flexible and stay flexible, whereas working at a smaller winery, you know, if you're only doing one task, it's, it's fairly straightforward. But to be able to kind of think and, and change plans on the go um, was really, really, a good foundation to build on too. So. so now you've done three harvests at three different places in Napa. Um, what will you, and you said you're obviously looking, looking for full-time work. So what's, what's the next step for you at that point? Uh, so the next step was, I, I stayed on there after, after harvest through probably February. So at that point, um, my little brother had graduated high school, so I you know, no longer went home to go coach ski racing. Uh, so at that point I was, you know, eyes toward Australia, um, or honestly anywhere, you know, Australia, New Zealand. And for some reason, whenever I try and break into something, it, it, I had the hardest time. So Australia, first harvest in Australia was a lot like first harvest in Napa where, I don't know, you know, I had worked three harvests and not a ton of experience, but same thing, man, I probably applied to to 300 wineries in Australia and got really fortunate. Um, there was a, I think, decanter article that came out right as I was applying to all these places about Tasmania and about, you know, cool climate, sparkling wine and Pinot Noir. And I said, that sounds more interesting than, you know, run of the mill, um, you know, big Shiraz, whatever else about Australia. So. Um, that was actually kind of where I focused my search and uh, was fortunate enough to end up at a winery called Bay of Fires, which um, has gone through a number of yeah, conglomerate-owned, I don't even know who they're owned by right now, but they had probably the biggest sparkling program in Tasmania in, for a long time. Um, so it was... That was by far the, the most exciting part and really high-end stuff. I mean, they would kind of leave things entourage for six to 10, 15 years, um, which, you know, at that time was kind of almost unheard of in the old or in the new world, I mean. Um, but, you know, same kind of thing. It was, I think I was the last, last intern hired, so, you know, really flew it under the radar. Uh, and it was a wild harvest in Tasmania. It was 13 in Tasmania was very similar to 13 in Oregon where it just started raining right before harvest and me coming from California and it's, you know, sunny and nice the entirety of harvest is <laughs> kind of, is this normal? Is, is this, or should we start picking grapes last week? Um, 
But that was, you know, a bigger winery. I think we probably did, I don't know, 1,500 tons, something like that. About a third still, about a third white, about a third red. Or sorry, third sparkling, third still white, third still red. Um, and that was also where I learned to hustle. Man, that was the first time I've ever worked at a winery that was a 24-hour continuously run winery. Um, and for the sparkling wine, it was all you know, obviously picked and pressed in Tasmania, and they had a separate facility up on the mainland that we would bulk wine out to. So, you know, running three presses constantly, um, 24 hours a day. Uh, and that, that harvest, like I said, the, the weather was pretty brutal. So it was just a slog fest to pick as many grapes as possible and get them turned into juice as fast as possible. So. Uh, there'd be days where you know you'd leave at it was a seven to seven, so you'd leave at seven o'clock, and you know you unloaded some grapes and put them over there and hand off your work, and then you get there at seven a.m. the next day, and those grapes are still sitting there, and it's like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> we'll try and get to them today now. But uh, it just yeah, I, mean, I remember you know pressing grapes and loading at the same a tanker at the same time, so you're just you know, pumping in and pumping out and, and really just trying to get it all done. But uh, fortunately, the, the wines we made in that vintage were really excellent. I've had the opportunity to, to go back and taste them and have some brought over from friends. And, um, and that was, I think, really where I fell in love with. I mean, sparkling wine's a lot of fun, but um, where I fell in love with, you know, Chardonnay in general. Uh, you know, I'd never really come across much compelling Chardonnay in Napa and, you know, honestly didn't pay much attention to it, but I think that was, you know, really where it started to click for me that, you know, cool climate Chardonnay and cool climate Pinot too were something that I wanted to pursue more. Um, so we, my wife came with me, um, and so we were there from March until probably July. Um, and at that point, you know, I think we were over Napa. Uh, we realized that, you know, we were never going to be able to buy a house there. Or, um, and, you know, the, honestly, the, the job market wasn't looking any better. And, you know, we just kind of wanted something different. So we came up to Oregon. Um, and at that point, I hadn't had much Oregon wine. Um, you know, I was working at one wine shop, and we had a bottle of Antica Terra that I was persuaded to buy by one of my coworkers, and I, you know, had that, and I said, okay, I think you know, there's something here. So, um, came up here in 2013 to work at Antica Terra with Maggie, um, and that was, you know, really what kind of cemented my love for Oregon. Um, you know, really really thoughtful way of, you know, not only making wine, but doing everything. Um, and something that I, you know, hadn't really been exposed to before. Um, you know, she's incredibly generous with her knowledge and, you know, sharing lovely wines from all over the world that, you know, inspire her and, you know, and, and she, I think, wants to inspire other people. And I was, you know, definitely inspired by everything that happened with her. Um, and, 
Yeah, I mean, 2013 in Oregon, uh, I didn't think it could be worse than 2013 in Tasmania, but it really was just a slog fest as well. Uh, you know, I think I got here probably the first or second week of September. We started work cleaning everything up. And then all of a sudden, it just like rained six inches in one day. And I'm just kind of like, this doesn't seem like it's a good thing. We haven't picked any grapes, and <laughs> it's a lot of rain. Um, and oh boy, that harvest. Uh, you know, I was really lucky that we had probably the best crew of people that I've ever worked with. Um, all, you know, really hardworking people, really fun to be around. Um, but there was a lot of long hours. I mean, there was just sorting grapes after sorting grapes, um, you know, for for a long time, much longer than any sane person would want to do it. But, you know, everyone there, I think, kept a really good spirit, um, worked at a really high level, um, and we still managed to have fun with, you know, one of the worst harvests that you could probably ask for in the last decade. Um, but from there, you know, I think I realized that I wanted to, to stay in Oregon. Um, I really like the this community, the the fact that you know people here were willing to to share ideas and share wines, and I mean honestly, their time. Um, you know, in Napa, I think the first Stagsleep Winery. I don't I don't know if we ever had a bottle of wine at work, um, and you know certainly at at the last couple of wineries I worked at, there was a lot more camaraderie, but. You know, you never just sat down with a winemaker and, and talked about this wine or that one, and certainly not, you know, the great wines of the world. So um, that was a really kind of transformative experience. And, you know, also, I think you, you walk into Antigua Terra and you just kind of look around and, you, you know, you wonder where the winery part of the winery is. Um, and you know, there's there's more people than there are tanks or pumps or um, you know any kind of normal winemaking equipment. And it really kind of showed me that you know if you have the best grapes, you really don't need a lot. You need you know people that are there paying attention, um, doing everything they can to make it into delicious wine. But um, you know you don't you don't need shiny tanks or um, you know fancy equipment um, and I you know I think that was kind of a big takeaway after working in these giant stainless steel <laughs> you know everywhere wineries that it, you know at the basics it, it still can work out really really well so obviously <clears throat> having been to Antiquaterra winery I can picture exactly what you're talking about <laughs> yeah. um, tell me about that experience for you after having worked at so many large places and so with so much equipment and so much everything um what were your impressions of sort of making wine that way and what what was it that made you think that oregon was the place you wanted to stay um i think you know in terms of of the the winery and the winemaking i i it was the first winery that i ever really felt like you know that like this is home like this is I could just see myself being here, staying here. Um, you know, I loved the work. I think was very thought-provoking. Um, you know, kind of a never compromise mentality. Um, and I think it was 
you know, a lot different than everything I had done in Napa. In some ways, kind of, kind of comparable to Robert Sinsky in, in terms of the wine and, and winemaking and style. Um, but then, you know, I honestly think that there, it was just having the opportunity to kind of interact with Maggie, uh, you know, on a, a daily basis of, okay, gang, you know, here's what we're going to do today and, and having lunch and sharing wines and, um, you know, I think that was the biggest part for me where I just felt like the community was more embracing of, of young people that wanted to learn. And I was a young person that wanted to learn. <laughs> that is for sure. So. so what did you do after Harvest? After Harvest with Maggie, I went back to Australia. Um, so 2014, I went to Brokenwood Winery in the Hunter Valley. Um, which was a lot of fun. Um, their company motto is make great wine and have fun and both of those things were done in spades. Um, is, uh, you know, it was different. It's a larger winery. They're probably a thousand tons maybe somewhere around there. Um, but one of the cool things about the winery is that, you know, they Pulling grapes from obviously the Hunter Valley where they are, and they have some very old vineyards, very nice vineyards, good grapes. But then they also kind of cherry pick from the rest of Australia. So um, we would get, you know, either grape tankers, uh, so we'd get like McLarenville Shiraz, we'd get, you know, Western Australia Cabernet. Um, and then they had a small, smallish little vineyard. Um, kind of in, not the Yarra Valley, but in kind of Victoria area. Um, and so they, they had like a grape quarantine there. So there, there was phylloxera in the region. And so you couldn't move any grapes out in or out of um, that part of Victoria. So we would have to go down there and make the, you know, that was all Chardonnay and Pinot. Um, so we'd fly down there, get a fresh pair of boots, <laughs> work for three weeks down there making the Chardonnay and Pinot, um, and then fly back to, to the home base, Brokenwood, um, which I think, you know, to me, really, after working at Bay of Fires Antique Terra, and then working with that, that vineyard and making that kind of Chardonnay, really kind of cemented my love for Chardonnay. Um, you know, Beechworth is the, is the region that it, it came from, and there's a couple other wineries there Giaconda is near there, but you know, certainly not mainstream Australian winemaking region that you think of. Um, but Brokenwood, the other thing that really stood out to me was kind of the level of mentorship offered. Um, it was kind of the same thing I saw with Maggie, where um, you know, everyone is, is happy to have a chat about why we're doing this, why we're doing that, how, you know, how they've come to realize that's what they want to do. And, you know, maybe some of the trade-offs of doing that versus other things. Um, but then they also, you know, every week would have like a big dinner and invite other winemakers from other wineries nearby. And it, you know, it'd be some, it'd be a theme dinner. So there'd be a Burgundy dinner and there'd be a Bordeaux dinner. Um, and just, you know, the sharing these wines that when you're a 25-year-old, however old I was, you know, it's something that can't imagine of drinking some of those wines. And, you know, it was a very 
very generous thing to do. Um, and I think, you know, that really kind of led me down the path of like, I, I just want to make the best wine in the world. That's, you know, the one goal I have is to really just get after it, um, put everything into it. And, you know, I think that uh, is a good kind of, like I said, maybe a little bit of a folly trying to obtain the unobtainable, but I think it's a fun path to be on. It's a lot of harvest in a pretty short time. Uh, with the harvest topping, uh, I assume at some point you were you were ready to land somewhere. Yeah, that was definitely high on the list. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so that 2014 harvest, my wife actually got a full-time job here in Oregon. Uh, so I was strongly requested to make my way back to Oregon sooner rather than later. Uh, so no, you know, no hanging out in, in Thailand for a month scuba diving or anything like that. Um, so I got back here in June, May, June, by June. Um, luckily, Indigotero had some work uh, for me, kind of waxing bottles and doing, you know, uh, general labor, uh, which I was very fortunate for because, um, you know, living here without any kind of job was a, a not a great opportunity. Um, and so we, I, at that point, I was really just on the hunt for any kind of full-time work. So I was really lucky to um, land a job at the Carlton Winemaker Studio um, back for the 2014 harvest. Um, so as the cellar master there dealing with, you know, I think at that time it was probably 12 different winemakers, um, which was a challenge. Um, it was, you know, a lot of uh, fixing things and not necessarily cleaning up after people, but, you know, the, I think it was, it was good and, you know, it was fun. I learned, learned a lot about kind of facilities management, which is just the most unglamorous but necessary part of winemaking. Um, a lot of, you know, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. Um, but, you know, also just good troubleshooting and, and, you know, it's a good skill set to have, um, you know, both in, in work and personal life. So, um, and, you know, there's a lot of winemakers there that, you know, are still there today that I respect a lot and was fortunate enough to kind of, you know, you know, not work for them, but I think some of those people realized that, you know, I wanted a little bit more, and so um, some of them, you know, offered some time to taste, and, you know, certainly I was doing some wine work for clients of the winemaker studio, so it was a good um, good way to kind of plant, plant myself here. Um, nice place to land. Obviously, a, a not a very large space and a lot of personalities uh, in a space like that. So tell me about managing a number of winemakers like that. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great idea in theory, but man, in practice, it's hard. Uh, everything wants, everyone wants the same thing at the same time. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that was the hardest thing. It's just like you said, it's really just managing personalities. and. Um, you know, making people realize that everyone's 
literally wants the same thing at the same time, and you know we have to share and we have to wait our turn, um, and you know don't break things. Um, and I think you know at that time there was there was a lot more winemakers and a lot kind of different style of winemakers. Um, so I, th I think it was a little bit harder at, at that point, but you know now it seems more manageable. So. So how long were you at the winemaker studio? I was there for the 2014 harvest. So I was there about a year, okay. probably from June to June or so. Um, and then from there, I got offered a job at Adelson Vineyard. Um, so that was, I started in yeah June 2015. Uh, and that was you know really great. Uh, it kind of walked into a fortunate situation, you know where. Multiple people had left at the same time, so uh, I thought I was kind of going in there for a lab seller hand role, and you know ended up working that first six months, and then got made seller master, you know right after that. Um, but that was you know a really a really great winery to you know plant your feet down and, and be there for a couple of years. And, you know, I was there until 2022, 20, so was that 15? Almost seven years. Um, you know, certainly the the historic element of it is is you know I'm kind of a romantic person at heart, so uh, being able to you know sit in the same room with David Adelsheim and or you know go to his vineyard and and walk the original vines with him is. You know, something that was really cool, and you know, by the time we had got to Napa, um, most of the kind of first generation it was either, you know, had already passed away or, or was no longer involved. So, that to me is something that is is crazy special. You know, even for me as someone, you know, experienced in the wine industry, but it was always really cool having you know interns come and you know, David was also very generous with his time, and um, you know, he would always meet. The, you know, fresh batch of interns, we'd go on a vineyard tour and say, oh, this is the quarter mile vineyard. And then, you know, David would walk out on the deck and, and you know, introduce himself to everyone and talk about, you know, planting the vineyard, whatever, 40 some five years ago. Um, and the same kind of thing, you know, I think that's just the consistent trend in, in Oregon is that people are very generous with their time and very, very kind of endearing of the next generation of winemaking winemakers. Um, and you know, I think at Adelsheim, I think it was a great, great fit for me just because I think, you know, there's a really, you know, inquisitive bunch. Dave Page was still there when I started and Gina Hennen, who's now the winemaker, was kind of the assistant associate winemaker. Um, and those two just loved asking each other questions and, and you know, doing experiments that you know, there's a lot of them. Uh, and I think just kind of getting that exposure to such a different array of winemaking and, um, you know, being in that kind of mindset of what if we tweaked this or what if we tweaked that, I think to me, you know, really, if, you know, I was there for whatever, six years, but it felt like a lot longer than that, just with kind of the, 
the diversity of things, the diversity of fruit, the diversity of winemaking. Um, and so to me, that was, that was really exciting. Um, and when I was there, you know, I'd focus more on the, on the white winemaking. I was, you know, very fortunate that the other person who left, uh, right as I joined the team, had been, you know, really in charge of the, the white winemaking there. Um, as, as far as harvests go, so I just kind of was very happy to step into that role. Um, and looking back on it, it was, you know, a little crazy just, you know, I'd worked there June, July, August, and then all of a sudden harvest comes around and it's, you know, here's a couple hundred tons of Pinot Gris, you know. <laughs> uh, and the Chardonnay, I think at that time, you know, was a lot more minimal than it was, at maybe 30 tons, something like that, but, you know, it was an interesting transition, you know, in the six years that I was there, we, you know, went from making majority Pinot Gris white wine to, you know, really having a strong um, sparkling program. Um, and, you know, grew a Chardonnay program from, whatever, 20, 30 tons to over 100 by the time I left, um, which, I mean, is probably, you know, pretty emblematic of the, of the valley at large, but, the, um, the sparkling program was a lot of fun, uh, working with, you know, all of our oldest, highest elevation vineyard, and it was great to be there for so long because, you know, sparkling wine takes a long time to learn. So, uh, you know, by the time I was left in 2021, I think we were releasing the 2016 sparkling wine. So, you know, it, we, we really only finished <laughs> I only saw two two vintages from from crush to eventual disgorging and release. So it was it was a fascinating thing to to learn year over year in that kind of the time frame um, for making sparkling wine is really hard. <laughs> Glad I don't do it anymore. But uh, yeah, I think you know just that kind of the eagerness of Adelsheim to, to always be improving and asking questions is something that really fit really well with my kind of personal goals. So as you mentioned, the first place where you kind of planted your feet, um, tell me about <clears throat> your evolving role there. And as you were focusing more and more on white wines, what were some of the sort of skills or tricks you learned about white, white wine, white wine making specifically? Um, yeah. Um, I think it was kind of one of those things where, you know, once the, the Pinot Gris went away and it was a, really a focus on Chardonnay, um, I think that was really what piqued my interest the most. Um, and you know, there was just endless numbers of experiments and, you know, different picking times and, you know, different handling of the wines, reductively, oxidatively, and, um, you know, different elevage procedures. Um, I think, you know, it was really an interesting thing to, I mean, I almost look at literally everything different you could do to Chardonnay. Um, you know, we went through a lot of different oak regimes, not regimes, but, you know, tried a lot of different coopers, tasted a lot of different barrels. Um, and, you know, I think that was really 
you know, not not a lot of places kind of give you that experience. Um, you know, the the ability to kind of do that, working with your own estate vineyards, and um, you know, that's probably one of the top twenty biggest producers of, of Chardonnay, and you know, you wouldn't really think it, but um, having the ability to work with that, you know, quality and quantity of grapes, grapes, and then also. You know, being able to work with Gina to design experiments for this vineyard or that vineyard, and you know, I think it's it's really cool to be able to work with you know long-term sites and have the same grapes, same vineyards every year, and to you know really refine refine your goals kind of incrementally. So, so as you look back on time at Alisheim. Uh, Obviously, you mentioned the experiments. Obviously, something that they've always been known for. Uh, do you have uh, either sort of favorite experiments, uh, meaningful moments that you look back on most fondly? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, we came out with two new, well, three new wines um, over the six years that I was there. So, uh, I mean, a lot of that was just because you know Adelsheim was a Pinot Gris powerhouse for a long time. So. You know, I think when I started, they only had Chardonnay planted at maybe three of their estate vineyards. Um, and you know, the, the best stuff certainly went to the sparkling wine. So, um, you know, at the, when I first started there, we were buying a lot of grapes from Stoller. Um, and that was kind of the single vineyard wine that they had made historically. And then there's a vineyard there called Ribbon Springs up on Ribbon Ridge that we grafted a lot of Pinot Gris over to Chardonnay and then planted more Chardonnay. Um, and that was a really exciting site to work with. Um, and so eventually, probably 2016, that became kind of the estate single vineyard wine, um, which was something that, you know really cool. It's, it's grapes that had never existed before, and now they're going into a bottle of wine. Um, and David Adelson was really big on his kind of staking claim and breaking ground series wines that you know were kind of a Shehalem Mountains blend. Um, so that was some purchased fruit, some estate fruit, um, but you know really tried to encapsulate all of the kind of soil series in the Shehalem Mountains. So um, that was a really fun fun wine to make, um, I think. And then there was one vineyard that always gave me the most trouble uh, was Boulder Bluff Vineyard, which is you know, kind of an interesting is 548 clone, which is, tends to be very phenolic and kind of tropical. And um, that was a vineyard that always gave me a lot of, a lot of trouble. And I was you know, questioning what to do. Um, and uh, you know, we definitely started making some strides, 17, 18, considerably better. Um, 19 was really nice, uh, and then 2020, it was probably the, eh, that or 21 were the best vintage of that vineyard that we had made, and it was some of the only clean fruit uh, that we picked before the fires in 2020, so that ended up being the 2020 single vineyard wine, which I should probably pull one of, that out of, pull one of those out of the cellar and drink it and check in on that, but... <laughs> Um, you know, just the, I think when you're, you know, making those minute adjustments and tweaks and, 
and you see them working and the wine quality improving, I think that's you know, the most exciting thing. Yeah. Obviously, you mentioned 2020. I was going to ask about that next anyway. So let's talk about the 2020. Oh, let's do it. The, 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 the everyone's favorite year. Um, so obviously, multiple challenges that year. But with the harvest specifically, uh, tell us about the challenge that that, per, per, uh, that that gave you and how you handled it. Yeah, what a bummer. Um, you know, I think dealing with COVID all were, you know, whatever, half the year before that, I think everyone was really looking forward to having something meaningful to do with their life. You know, we were all ready to wear masks and sit apart from each other at lunch. Uh, and then that hit, and it was, it was hard. Um, and, you know, certainly there was a, a smaller fire that was, you know, probably a couple stone throws away from David Adelsheim's house. Um, so, you know, on top of everything COVID going on, we also had, you know, half of our vineyard crew evacuated from their house. Uh, we had friends that lived up there that, you know, were evacuated from their house and they came to live with us for a week. And I just remember them coming into our house and be like, do you want us to wear a mask in your house? And I'm like, I can only handle one catastrophe at a time. So right now it's forest fire, you know. Um, but, you know, as far as the winemaking goes, uh, I, you know, honestly, I felt worse for the interns. I think that was, it was just such a bummer of a year. Um, and, you know, had it happened at the end of harvest and, you know, we got most of the grapes in, it would have been one story. But to kind of having to, to slog through it, knowing that this is not going to be great wine, um, I think it was really, really hard. Um, and, you know, some people, I think some of our interns saw that. And it was, I think, hard as, you know, a leader manager to to not be <laughs> bummed out, at least, you know, uh, when you're facing your interns and talking to them. Um, but some of the people, you know, still, I think, had a had a pretty good outlook on it and still you know, used it as an opportunity to learn. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly had plenty of time to, to teach people that were still uh, interested in learning. So um, if one, of the, one of my Adelsheim interns in, in 2020 actually came and worked with me in 2022. And that was a really exciting kind of, a, you know, we missed on the first one and it wasn't meant to be. but. Uh, you know, there's there's more harvests out there in the future. Coming off of that that harvest in 2020 and that, that whole year in 2020, um, a lot of things kind of uh, a lot of things kind of happening after that. So tell us uh, what was next for you. What, what... Yeah, I think you know 2020 was eye-opening in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I think for me that it was hard. You know, with everything going on in the world, the country, uh, you know, to, to be in the luxury goods market is, you know, I think pretty easy to forget at the end of the day, you know, we're not necessarily providing any utility to, to civilization or the world, you know, we are simply making delicious things to drink. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, I had, you know, been in, at Adelsheim for six years and 
Um, you know, I think kind of had learned, you know, learned a lot about, you know, answered a lot of the questions that I had about winemaking and, um, you know, was not tapped out, but, um, you know, I was ready for a new challenge. Um, so, I'd, and, you know, I think the other thing that's nice is that, you know, you kind of learn where you want to go next. Um, so I ended up accepting a job for the winemaker for Double Zero Wines. Um, and so it started in April of 22. I'm still there currently. Um, which to me, you know, I when I was looking for my next step after Out of Slime, I, I really thought back, you know, to where I, I felt the most at home. And, you know, to me that was at something like Antigua Terra. Um, and, you know, I'd been familiar with the Double Zero wines and tasted them here and there. Um, but, you know, throughout the interview process was just really impressed. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been a real joy to work with the Herman family, Chris and Catherine. Um, the, the entire operation is, is very high level, you know, from the vineyard sourcing to the winemaking. Um, you know, everything is just really top notch. And uh, it's awesome to, you know, go into, into a day at work during harvest and, you know, you just have some of the best grapes that are grown in Oregon from some of the oldest vineyards and it's really hard to not be happy making that kind of a wine. So, very exciting. What's it like to be winemaker versus cellar master, assistant winemaker, intern, everything else you've been? What's it like to have that title? Uh, not as hard as I thought it would be. Um, you know, I think you develop that intuition, you know, whether you're the one calling the shots or you're kind of second in charge, I think, you know, even though you're not making those decisions, I think you, you form pretty strong opinions and um, I'm personally, you know, someone that has a hard time making decisions. Uh, so I do a lot of second guessing late at night. Um, but I think once you realize that, you know, it, it, it has to be done. You know, in, in calling picks or picking barrels or, um, you know, anything. Uh, you're not going to shoot 100%. Um, but, you know, just relying on your kind of accumulated wisdom to, to make the best decision in the moment in that situation is really kind of all you can, can ask of yourself. You mentioned being impressed through the, the process of, of, of applying and interviewing at Double Zero. What did you sort of take away from as like the, the goal and, and your role in, in their goal? I think, you know, the thing that really sold it for me is, is our vision aligns when, you know, I think all of us want to make the best wine in the world. Um, and they're very clear that, you know, that's their goal and I was very clear that's my goal. And, I think that's why, you know, it ended up the way it did, so. So you mentioned earlier, you talked about kind of initial impressions of Oregon as you got to Antigua Terra and started working in some of the various places here and uh, talked about kind of the inclu in inclusivity and, the, and the, the welcoming aspect of it. 
what have you seen as far as Oregon's uh, changes in that way, or what does Oregon look like to you now in 2023 as an industry? Um, I think it's really exciting. Um, I think, you know, when we got here in, in 2013, 2014, um, you know, it was still, I don't want to say the old guard, but it, you know, it still seemed that most of the wineries were, you know, people that had 10 to 20 acres of vineyard and a little winery here and there. And I think, you know, one of the people that really inspired me back then and still does to this day is, is kind of Walter Scott. Um, and, you know, to think that he was kind of in, in the, early phases of his venture back then. Um, but you know, now you look around and I see so many people that are making great wine, um, you know, doing it without their own vineyards, without their own winery. Um, you know, I think the, the diversity of wine in being made in Oregon now is, is really exciting. I think as much as I love Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, um, you know, people that are out there pursuing Gamay and, and um, Trousseau and Chenin Blanc and Aligote. Um, I think that's really endlessly fascinating. And, I, and I'm glad there's more diverse wines being made by a more diverse group of people making them. Um, and I think it's, it's really cool to me to see, you know, people my age or younger going out there and doing it. I think it's... Um, you know, probably isn't easy, as easy to do it now as it was um, five years ago, but I think the, the quality of wines coming out of Oregon have only increased, you know, drastically in the last, whatever, 10 years since I've been here. And so what do you see next for the industry? I think that, you know, the industry will continue to grow, but what I really see is it's you know, not a generational sh shift, but I think a lot of the kind of early pioneers, and you know, I'm not talking about like the Adelsheims or the Let or something like that, but I think there's a lot of people that, you know, planted vineyards in the late 90s, early 2000s that are suddenly realizing that it's a lot of work and you really don't make it a lot of money. And I think there's going to, you know, probably be a pretty decent turnover. Um, and I think the kind of second, you know, generation of, of people coming in will be very interesting. It never ceases to amaze me how many kind of wineries or labels pop up um, year to year without, you know, really, oh, where, where, did, where did you come from? Or, um, so I think that'll be big and, you know, you certainly, you can see the, the outside investment coming, you know, whether it's people from California, people from Burgundy, um, I think that's going to, going to continue to increase. Um, and I think it'll be good. I think, you know, it's easy for us in Oregon to kind of sit back and, and rest on our laurels. But man, I tell you, if you go to a wine shop outside of Oregon, the, the shelf of Oregon wine is, you know, maybe one-tenth of what is available from California. And, you know, I certainly have high hopes for Oregon Chardonnay, but, you know, you, you go out there and there's still a lot of work to do. I think, you know, some people connotate Oregon and, and Pinot Noir, but 
far less know about Chardonnay or have even tried it. So I think there's still a, a pretty large, large gap to fill um, in getting our, our story out there. And you know, I think that a lot of these you know ventures of St. Michelle coming in, Constellation coming in, Kendall Jackson coming in. I honestly think it'll help the Oregon industry a lot. And I think it'll get, you know, quality wine in front of people at a good price point. And I think that's what it takes to to get people kinda hooked. So And what comes next for you? Oh, I don't know. I spent my last three or four years figuring out this last year, so uh, what comes next for me? I don't know. I'm I'm pretty contented as it is right now. Um, you know, we just my wife and I had a had a baby last year, so we got a one year old at home. So, you know, hopefully, taking more time with him. Uh, you know, the the idea of both of us working harvest with children is significantly harder than I thought it was. Um, really kind of, <laughs> you know, I probably took that last harvest without a child for granted a little bit too much, but, um, you know, in some ways it's easier, it's, you know, I leave from work and, you know, baby goes to the nanny and I come home from work and baby's sleeping and it's, it's kind of weird. Um, it's almost like taking a break from being a parenthood, from being a parent and, you know, not in a good way. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I you know I don't I don't know what's next. I'm not I'm not crazy enough yet to want to start my own label or plant my own vineyard. Um, I think I know too much and uh, <laughs> don't have enough money yet, to be honest. So, is there anything uh, sort of aspirational for you? Do you have do you have goals or or projects you'd like to do down the road? Um, eventually, yeah, I'd like. I'd like to make my way back to Tasmania at some point and um, make a little wine down there. I think that'd be that'd be nice. Um, but other than that, goals and aspirations, just to you know, continue to learn more, improve, um, and just you know, get a couple good good harvests under my belt at double zero and and really kind of take that project to the next level and you know see where we go from there obviously someone who in your your, your position you've interacted with a lot of interns you've been an intern you've interacted with lots of people getting into the industry tell me about uh, best advice or words of wisdom for someone getting into the Oregon wine industry oh get a good pair of work boots um, you know I think attitude is everything um, I think, you know, realizing that it's going to be harder than any other job, but more fun than any other job you've had, um, I think that's really important. Um, I think, you know, asking questions at the right time is really important. Um, and it, I think, you know, just having a good attitude is, is something that's irreplaceable as far as you know anyone working in a winery really um, like I said you know at the end of the day we're just making an expensive beverage um, but I think that you know if you show up and, and really work hard um, stay off your phone um, I'm, yeah kids these days I'm an old old man now apparently um, yeah I mean work hard 
be pleasant, ask the right questions at the right time. Um, you know, I think, I think that gets you a long ways. So the questions that I have for you, uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover today? Uh, no, I don't think so. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, sharing Thank your you, stories Rich. with us, sharing your wisdom with us as well. Oh, yeah. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.